0: In case you missed it, in our last episode, Logan and I went over our six through 10 movies of the decade, and today we will get into our top five. Enjoy. My number five so I mentioned that basically I trusted my past self. And that I, you know, nothing, nothing leapfrogged other movies. I kind of just trusted the orders within a given year. And then I would maybe I would just kind of figure out, okay, number two from 2016 might have beat number one from a year or, you know, things like that. But within a year, I kept everything the same. There were a few examples. That's way more method than I put (laughs) in. Well, honestly, (laughs) I needed a way to constrain myself because otherwise I would have been trying to quantify it another way. Your brain would have exploded. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So now I did have a few exceptions in my honorable mentions. Actually, And we'll get to that with honorable mentions. Is I put some movies at 18, 19, 20 that all actually were leapfrog movies. that kind of just didn't leave my mind. Okay. But the sole exception here in the top 10, my number five overall of the decade from 2016. I had it number four in 2016. I'm now retroactively calling it my number one from 2016. I absolutely love this movie. On rewatch, I was. I this was the only movie <laughs> I'm gonna have to bleep myself here, but this is the only movie when I was rewatching all the movies for, the, for this list three fourths of the way through. As I'm watching this by myself, I said out loud to no one, I fucking love this movie. <laughs> okay, I'm excited to kay. see what it is. It's it's uh, <laughs> Sing Street.
1: Okay. Uh, not only do I not have this movie on my list,
0: I still <laughs> oh, have not man. watched this movie. <laughs> okay, which I know you've yeah, recommended yeah. to me. Okay, that's time? that's your homework assignment. That's going to be your takeaway from this okay. list. So I will I will talk around it so I don't spoil it for you right here. But, and I don't have a problem doing that. Okay. It's, it's more about the abstract than it is about the plot itself. But which you've said that before, yeah. Yeah. So did you did you see Once the uh, Irish uh, Singing movie? I think I saw
1: it when it came out. Um, I don't really remember that much about it other than it was like a guy playing guitar.
0: Um, oh, my God, you son of a bitch. <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I don't
1: know. I don't, I
0: don't know. And no, but this, this highlights the opposite. This is the opposite of Mad Max Fury Road because <laughs> yeah. maybe you won't like this movie. <laughs>
1: <laughs> you are telling me there is not a single car exploding in this
0: movie. So okay. So, I absolutely love these two. Uh, Once and then Sing Street are both by John Carney. So, in Once, so we've talked several times about the whole diegetic versus non diegetic thing. So, Once is a musical that's not a musical because every time there is a song within the film, it's the characters are musicians and they're just playing a song. So, that would be diegetic. I always give them backwards. Okay. Yes. So yes, non-diagetic is the characters can't okay. hear that music. So, but yeah, other movies I feel wouldn't wouldn't live in that as much. This is they'll walk into a guitar shop and then play a song for five minutes in the movie. Okay. And and that's once. And so it's about the relationship with these musicians, and it's just this sweet little small 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 story. You know, <laughs> like you said, no explosions at all. And what I what I loved about Once was instead of hiring actors to play musicians, he hired musicians to act. Yeah. Okay. So the main characters are musicians, and he just has them play these characters. Even, but their primary profession is is musicians. Anyway, I just think it works beautifully. It's a sweet little tale. It's the one. And and see, because I'm trying to think what year Once came out. You you might be a hair uh hair young because I didn't think they were that far apart though. Came out in 2007. Yeah. Okay. So Once was 2000. Yeah, so they were nine years apart, which kind of surprised me. So this is the, one of the kind of famous moments of the Oscars. Jon Stewart was the host this year, once won for Best Original Song, and, but they got kind of cut off because uh, there was the two of them. So I think he got a talk and she didn't get a talk. And so when they came back from commercial, Jon Stewart basically made a point. It's like, um, I'm going to let them come back and actually get to say their acceptance speech. I think I remember that. You know what? That might actually
1: because that would have been what two thousand the two thousand eight Oscars. Yes, I was a freshman in high school. I think that might be like the first Oscars that I ever like actually sat down and actually watched and cared okay. about.
0: And and then and, and then they just kind of give this you know this very heartfelt speech, and I, I would tear up just watching the Oscars. It's such an underdog movie. Like it had no business being at the Oscars under traditional circumstances, but it was that freaking good mm-hmm. that that was its only yeah. nomination. And it won best original song, and the music in the movie is absolutely amazing. And I know I'm spending a lot of time talking about Once when I'm talking about Sing Street, <laughs> 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 um, but very similar vibe. So, so Once was contemporary, set in Dublin with musicians. This is set in the 80s with a group of high school kids, and it focuses on the one kid who and I forget. I think it's a new school. I think he's finally going to the public school from uh, or. I forget the exact schooling situation, but basically he was at like the nice private school, now he's at the crappy parochial school with in, in kind of a fish out of water and starts a band to impress a girl. And that's it. That's the plot. That's the whole story. But the music okay. within the movie again very much like once where he just kind of sucks you in and just charming. This movie is just so freaking charming. And I, I can't even describe it other than just, again, it just works for me. I could get not being particularly impressed with it. But I just can't take my eyes off the characters in this movie. And it's just so, it's just a sweet, sweet movie. But also not predictable, but, but also not cheesy at all. Like, it just, it's, okay. it's sincere and it, it earns these little things. And, you know, the, the teen love angst, it's just absolutely earns it. The main kid is actually, if you've seen the show Vikings, he plays King Alfred, Prince Alfred. So he, so he, so he, he okay. But so he does kind of get. He's kind of had a you know little bit of a career since then, playing a prominent role in that show. But uh, yeah, no, no Oscar nominations. It's not that kind of movie. It, it's it's just way way too small to even be on the radar. It you know hardly anyone's even seen it. Even the Oscar voters. And now in Rotten Tomatoes. It's a 95%. So I'm not blowing smoke here. And a 92% on the... On is that... That's the critic, critic score? is 95%. Audience score is 92%. I am not full of... it. So everybody, everybody loves it. this movie. Everybody loves it. I don't really want to look at the negative reviews. <laughs> and it's like... <laughs> it's... Oh, it's... It's so, so much fun. I ended up buying it on Amazon because it was, it was only going to be like... So initially, it was on Netflix. So I didn't have to pay to watch it the first time. It was already on Netflix. But... It was only like two more dollars to buy it than it was to rent it. So I was like, I'm my on street.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> and again, I was i was honestly kind of surprised with how well it held up on the rewatch. And I kind of thought okay. it was going to be one of those where like, yeah, just, you know, it kind of definitely got me the first time. But I- I'm guessing it wasn't really that good. I just kind of was in the right mood. It's like, no, no. Again, like I said, I said out loud by myself, I love this movie. Uh Three and, way through well, it.
1: And, and the the fact that they cuz it's set like back in the 80s, right? Yes, yes. So the, I mean that that might lend to its uh its stand up ability, you know. True, like,
0: true. It doesn't feel dated because it was made Cuz I
1: think cuz it takes piece. place like in 2007. Yes. Yeah. So when you go back and watch it's like okay, like this movie was made in the early to- like the mid 2000s. Right. So yeah,
0: Sing Street set, you know, 30 years before it was made. Yeah. And anyway, Dude, you gotta watch it. Everybody listening. And again, I don't know if I've talked to many other people or any other people who have seen Sync Street. Or yeah, it's it's just uh I love it so much. Honestly, I'm talking <laughs> I've already <laughs> talked myself into five's too low. <laughs> Sing <laughs> Street, movie of the decade. You're,
1: you're gonna you're gonna cut and paste it. Cut and paste Oh it my gosh. Oh
0: my gosh. But no, like that was that's the biggest move I've seen. Honestly, I can't even think of another example. So it was number four at the time, and I feel like I was probably being maybe a homer for it back in you know in 2016. And now I'm like, no, screw it. Yeah. It's the best movie of that year, and and I'm nice. talking myself into moving it up. Other than I love the other movies on this list that we still got to come. So let's okay. uh go to your number five. So my number five is a uh, another
1: movie from 2015, written by Taylor Sheridan, directed by Denis Villeneuve. Sicario.
0: Okay, oh my gosh. So Which again,
1: this is a movie that I know full well that I fell asleep during. It's definitely not the top 5 best movies of the decade, but it is my top 5 favorite movie of the decade.
0: And I need to rewatch it because I fell asleep during it and I have not rewatched it.
1: Okay, uh definitely do yourself a favor and finish it because it's awesome. It's so it is. It's right up my alley. I am a huge fan of Taylor Sheridan's writing. Um, he's only written three movies, which we may or may not be talking about in a couple
0: minutes. Um, <laughs> Denis Villeneuve, big uh, fan of is him, an yeah. incredible director. I'm super excited about his Dune movie coming out. Super yes. excited. Like yeah. I, I, have almost too high hopes for it. He's awesome. Um, and again,
1: this is another. It's it's another. It's right up my alley because it is a western. Um, it's, uh, well, I guess it'd be considered a neo-Western, um, but it has all of the basic, um, beats and tropes and like, uh, you know, it's, it's all about, um, it's almost more like, uh, like Unforgiven or something where they kind of, uh, you know, focus on like, like the, the ethics of fighting the drug war and, um, almost the futility of all the killing and the death and the violence. There are, a couple of sequences in this movie that are super, super suspenseful in the best way possible. I, I don't, I don't really want to spoil these for you since you haven't seen it. How how, oh, yeah. how far did you make it in the movie?
0: So yeah, I so I was out in San Diego staying with a friend, and we, that was the movie we ended up renting. But it was, you know, after a day, kind of you know a lot sightseeing and all that kind of yeah. stuff, and yeah, I I just. I was kind of tired already when we put it on, yeah. I guess. And of course, you know, I'm also in a different time zone. So I'm in, yeah, I just, I, I couldn't even tell you. Okay. Yeah. Like it, right. it was more of an in and out. It was more of an in gotcha. and out than it was uh, just, so, yeah. So, so right off
1: the bat at the very beginning of this movie, Emily Blunt and Daniel Kaluuya, FBI agents, they raid this house um, and they find a bunch of dead bodies buried in the walls. And uh, Josh Brolin shows up. He's kind of Mr. Secret Squirrel And he tells her, hey, come with me. We're going to go on this mission. We're going to make life hard for the cartels. And it kind of goes from there. Awesome performances by Emily Blunt. Awesome performance by Josh Brolin. Uh, Benicio Del Toro is awesome in this movie. Um, Visually, this movie is crazy pants uh, at the end. Like the last probably 30 minutes of this movie have some of the coolest visuals um, mm. They do an entire sequence that's shot. In, so the sequence was actually shot in pitch black. None of what you see on screen was recreated digitally. They actually shot on thermal cameras and night vision cameras. So it is like mm. what it would actually look like if you were going through this situation with thermal vision or, or, or night vision. Um, they have this really cool uh, shot where they're um, following a guy you're following his path with this in this thermal vision and you can see the boot prints on the ground, like cause it's warmer where he's stepped. Uh, right. Which almost gave kind of like, I mean, it's, it's not really the same situation, but it gave kind of like a silence of the lamb vibes with the night vision. Um, oh, right, only right. it's, only it's all actually real. Um, I guess they like, they like took a blow dryer, heated up the bottom of boots and like made, made this path. For the, <laughs> like, so it's, it's all practical effects too. um, yeah, right. Nazi G. Yeah, it yeah, is. Yeah. It's so awesome. It it deals with um, which and it's more than just the cool practical effects and stuff too. Like it actually does deal with some pretty heavy subjects, like um, you know how much should the U.S. be meddling uh, in the affairs of Mexico, uh, the war on drugs, right. um, you know, covert operations on U.S. soil. So yeah, awesome, awesome movie. For sure, go and watch it uh, if you have it. Okay, I
0: I'll, I'll, I will watch Sicario, and you're gonna watch Sing Street. Deal, deal. <laughs> kind of interesting that's both our number fives are the ones that yeah. we hadn't seen, or the other. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh,
1: so Oscars wise, um, it got nominated for three. Uh, it didn't win any, um, but it's these are all definitely scenarios where it's like okay, like it it was. I mean, you're going up against a powerhouse, so uh, best cinematography. Uh, the Revenant won that year. Very much, rightly so. Best original score. Um, so the the composer for the score is Johan Johansson. Um, and I guess I, I had watched a video where he was talking about writing the score. And I didn't pick up on it the first probably ten times that I watched the movie. But now I can hear it clear as day when he talks about how he uh, used Jaws as a... Um, as an influence to create um, like what being stressed out sounds like. Um, and there's one scene in particular um, where they're on a bridge coming back into the United States from Mexico. And you can really hear, you can hear the that the score was influenced by Jaws. Um, I'll just say okay. that. Um, however, uh, it did not win the Oscar for best original score because inio morricone won that year for the oh. hateful eight score
0: okay um,
1: okay which again you know can't
0: fault that props for their do
1: um and then uh it got nominated for best sound editing uh which mad max won that year uh which we talked about they basically swept the technical category so
0: i do think that's something that is so underrated the idea of the people who would have won Oscars if it had not been for, un, you know, an all-time performance being their year, and then conversely people that won only because there wasn't an all-time Oscar their year. And I, I almost wish there was a way to quantify that, or if they maybe would get together, like, basically the best bad beats. What are the best bad beats in Oscar history? Yeah. Like like we've talked about with, like, a cabaret losing to The Godfather or something like that yeah. for, for Best Picture. Yeah. You know, how many of these things was like, oh, or they they would have won, but it was that year. Or like, what movie was it? I don't remember whose performance
1: it was, but they were in a movie. They had an awesome performance, and it was the same year. It might have actually been Lawrence of Arabia. The same year that To Kill a Mockingbird came out.
0: Yeah, I think that was it off the top of my head. And, yeah, I think you're right. And uh, Peter O'Toole, O'Toole only loses was, right, because Gregory Peck won for To Kill a Mockingbird. It was Atticus frickin' Finch. Right, exactly, an all-time performance and and classic character, yeah. yeah. Those two movies just happen to come out the same year, right, right. And you don't think about, oh, is that why O'Toole? Of course, I think O'Toole later he's he he won other Oscars. I'm sure he did. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, yeah.
1: um, But yeah, so that's my that's my number five, Sicario. Go watch it.
0: Okay. Okay. What's uh, Rotten Tomatoes? Oh, on Rotten Tomatoes, it is a yeah. It's a 92 critics, 85 audience. So, yes, okay. very very solid. All right, that's yeah. actually yeah, I, no, it's, I. It's it's legit. I didn't
1: expect the critic score to be that high. Um, oh, okay. It's it's a really good movie. Um, I just I guess I just figured that people would say, oh, you know, it's fine, it's like a
0: shoot 'em up action movie or whatever. But no, it is actually really really well made. And yeah, uh, a surprising blind spot for me. Like anything in the last ten years that's a 92 percent. I don't understand how I have not seen it Other than I think I just Since I half saw it I haven't gone through and, and re-watched yeah. it
1: And I will say uh, So both the writer and the director Taylor Sheridan and Denis Villeneuve uh, I will be completionist of their work For as long as they're still making Movies Like okay, anytime okay. a Taylor Sheridan movie comes out Or a De- uh, Denis Villeneuve movie comes out Like
0: I'm there Okay So what was your number four? My number four is The Fighter from Mm -hmm. 2010. Okay. And that was my favorite movie of 2010. And it was one that I had rewatched before. So when I rewatched it for this, it was probably the third or maybe even the fourth time I had seen it. And it kind of falls into the group, I would say. I didn't expect it to hold up as much. Like I almost didn't understand. Like It's just another boxing movie, and it won't hold up. And, you know, there's so many boxing movies. Why is this one special? But I, I'll say, i say, to rephrase that last sentence, in a world of amazing boxing movies, I'm going to say The Fighter is the best boxing movie of all time. Okay. Ga- gauntlet thrown down. Gauntlet okay. thrown down. See, and so I've, I, man,
1: I probably saw this movie in 2010, oh, or maybe 2011, okay. like, leading up to the Oscar buzz. But... Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I only saw it the one time. I remember liking gotcha. it. Um, I remember really liking Christian Bale's performance, um, especially because, you know, he did the whole, like, crazy weight loss thing that he always does, yeah, um, yeah. which is always cool to see, like, the physical transformations, and Mark Wahlberg got, like, just super jacked for this movie. But I I don't know. I, I, I wonder if it, maybe it is if I was just like, eh, you, you know, boxing movies pretty good, like, good acting, but, you know, it's a boxing movie. I don't know why I never went back and and rewatched it, um, especially because you know I I generally trust your uh, recommendation as far as movies <laughs> concerned, and you had it as an as the best movie of
0: 2010. Um, so yeah, I don't know. And let's see. So as compared to some of the other movies we've been talking about, I guess I can't necessarily extemporaneously come to bat in the, the same way it's more just like it just works for me i just it feels yep. so real it feels so earned and the whole idea that they're filming this well one it's a true story so there maybe, yeah. there's a difference too so like well of course a lot of boxing movies are but so the Rocky movies are not but yeah cinderella Ra- cinderella man raging bull those are based on true stories but but this is more of the kind of the, i don't know this this small time story you know it's they talk about this HBO documentary that's being filmed at the at the same time and you think it's like, oh, it's about this it? boxing I have not. Have you?
1: I haven't seen it, but I, I know that the so Christian Bale's character is the focus of a right. real life HBO documentary about drug use in that neighborhood, and it's controversial because the filmmakers after the movie came out came under fire because they basically filmed all these people destroying their lives. And they didn't intervene at all, including Mm. uh, a pregnant woman who used drugs in front of them and, you know, on camera. You know, they filmed it and and nobody did anything about it, Um, which I I don't know. It's a slippery subject because, like, what do you do? Is that, like, do you sacrifice the artistic integrity, like – Maybe the fact that you're filming that And then you can show that to people Show, hey, don't do drugs Like, this is how it can destroy your life But at the same time, like She's pregnant and doing drugs right
0: in front of you And, like, maybe do something about it I don't know I don't know No, I hadn't heard all that That's Yeah, that's interesting And I'm gonna put a pin and going off on a tangent on all that Sure, <laughs> yeah, 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 There's a lot there And so, yeah, but in the movie it's almost uh, Oh, not quite a twist But it's basically a twist Because Christian Bale's character is uh, Dicky is selling it as HBO's doing a documentary about it. They're talking; you're gonna, it's a video about my comeback, and it's like, no, dude. So it's like a twist when he's he's in jail and they are actually prison, and they you kind of see that the documentary is, No, it's about addiction, dude. Yeah, like, yeah. Did he actually not know? Is he just deluding himself? And actually, I think that's probably it. The whole idea of deluding himself. And here's the guy who had his fifteen minutes of fame was when he knocked Sugar Ray Leonard down in a fight. Like he didn't win the fight. No he Right, he's still, yep. right, he still lost, but he actually knocked Sugar, Sugar Lay Leonard down in a fight, and he's basically now this crackhead who, that, that was his career, sorry, that was his life highlight, and the greatest accomplishment in his whole life, and he's still hanging his hat on that, and he's just such a pathetic character, and I don't mean that in an assaulting way, like more just no, like... No, you, t- you literally take pity on him. Right. Yeah. So, and then juxtaposed with Mark Wahlberg's character who is kind of getting over the hill for a fighter and, you know, kind of wants one last shot, but, you know, also wants to just kind of move on with his life and just dealing with his family and are they motivated by what's best for him and his career or are they just trying to ride his coattails to some kind of monetary reward because they're all, you know... Uh, lower class. Not, I was going to say lower middle class. You know, they're all lower class, poor people in the suburbs of Boston. And, you know, Mickey might be their only ticket out of there. Yes. Yeah. So or are they just trying to want him, wanting him to fight because that's what's best for him. And then he gets, you know, involved with Amy Adams who becomes his love interest. And she's, you know, kind of looking at that and she wants what's best for him as a person and not necessarily the money stuff. And then she's getting in the way with the family stuff. And so it's just all the real life dynamics at play, I just think they do beautifully. And the it's a boxing movie that's not about boxing. Right. Yeah. It's about these characters. The boxing is so secondary. But I think that's how you ultimately earn it. And... Become the much a much better movie, and what's crazy too is I said it was the third time I would watched it. I'm still in the last fight, and I don't remember what happens <laughs> because that's not a because honestly, it's not important. Yeah, I remember. I remember the characters. I remember the scene. You know, the you know cr- the scene with Christian Bale and his mom in the car, which is kind of his you know his Oscar winning scene. But I don't, didn't remember how the fight ended, and I was, I'm just here, just like getting that that visceral kind of like you know kind of you feel every punch kind of thing in the movie and like in the, in the fight, and I just. I was getting so so into it, and I'm a huge Amy Adams fan, like on every level. <laughs> Amazing actress, and I I'm in love with Amy Adams. <laughs> and it's just I don't know, just such a good movie. It just I'm not a huge Mark Wahlberg fan, but I think in this movie he's absolutely, absolutely perfect. Perfect. Yep. I think the and you get you get the fight montage, but uh this is one I know Sam always comes back to. With the the song to the montage is just perfect. It's it's the antithesis of the Rocky montage where it's raw raw raw. Right. This is more of the subdued. It's time to get back to work. Yep. And I'm just dealing with my life kind of montage. Yeah. And I think it's just beautiful filmmaking of a real life story with fantastic acting and it just like so honestly what it comes down to. A lot of these other movies ah we can nitpick this we can nitpick that. I can't nickpick The Fighter. This this is just kind of a flawless movie, and I can't think of anything negative to say about it. And even some of the movies that I have ahead of it, I have flaws with. This might be the most flawless movie on the list. It's just a great, great movie, great filmmaking, my number four of the decade. Awesome. Did we do we uh, So the full Oscar list, so yeah, it won... Two for the both supporting actor roles, uh, Christian Bale as the brother and Melissa Leo as the mother. Um, It was nominated for five others, including Best Picture, Amy Adams for Supporting Actress, David O. Russell, and then Original Screenplay. Again, I love my Original Screenplay movies and uh, and film editing. And then on Rotten Tomatoes, it is a 91% critics with an 89 audience score. So absolutely love The Fighter and it totally holds up more than I expected it to. Awesome. Yeah, I'll have to go revisit it um, because I think...
1: I think I would probably enjoy it more than I guess I remember
0: enjoying it. Okay. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. Let's move to your number four.
1: All right. So my number four is a 2016 movie written by Eric Heiserer and directed by Denis Villeneuve. And I've got good news for you because you said you like Amy Adams. It's Arrival.
0: Hey, I do <laughs> like Amy Adams and I do like Arrival. Although I didn't have, I didn't have that on my list, but, uh, Oh man. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll get, we'll, okay. I, I, we'll get we'll get to it. We'll get to it. Gotcha, gotcha. So Arrival blew
1: my mind the first time I watched it. <laughs> blew my mind. The way that so first of all, the movie looks awesome, um, which is no surprise with Ronnie right. Villeneuve. I yep. uh, yep. love his style. Yeah, the cinematography's awesome. The way it it doesn't go at all where you think it's going to go. You are completely captivated by this quest that Jeremy Renner and Amy Adams are undertaking to try and communicate with the aliens. And then at the same time, they the, the conflict, you know, with, with that, but also like there's, you know, literal people trying to, to blow them up. Cause I think the aliens are evil and they're also getting all this pressure from Forrest Whitaker. Who's the, you know, the main, uh, you know, the, the military general who's there kind of, You know, trying to trying to push them and prod them along, and and just the way it made me think about language in a way that I had never thought about it before. Yeah, true. And the way that they're talking about, which, you know, it's it's not like you see a movie like Independence Day, and you take so much for granted, and there are so many assumptions made where they're like, oh, okay, we just, you know, the characters, the the the. Characters are able to communicate with the aliens um, because it's English and alien language. It's a one-to-one. We just right. beep, boop, beep, boop, and now we can, you know, you, yep. you communicate with the aliens. And this movie just it says no, it wouldn't be like that at all. Right? You, we have no idea the way that they communicate. They don't communicate verbally at all. Their entire right. language is, I guess you would say, written, but it's not even written. It's like. Holograph like ink, blotted into the air, and it's a circle. That each circle has the and these like oh man, it's just and they're talking about like the way that they are. Their approach is different than like the way that the Chinese scientists in the movie they use uh, mahjong as the base for how they start their communication with the aliens. But then they realize by the time they're like way into this process oh actually that might not have been the best idea because mahjong is inherently competitive so Mm. you're like weaving this this idea this theme of conflict into the entire language that you're then translating without even trying to because you used a game as you know as your basis for communication uh, which actually comes into play later in the movie where they talk about you know that well we don't know cuz they they say something i don't remember what the exact thing is that the aliens say but basically they it it seems foreboding and they say well we don't know that they're threatening us we don't even know if they know the difference between a tool and a weapon like we don't know oh, if they're huh. even using that you know if they even have that concept in their
0: minds True but they they aren't killing us so we're at least going to try to figure out what they want
1: Right right <laughs> But then, and again, we're headed into spoiler territory, it turns out that the alien language, uh, it doesn't have a beginning and an end because these aliens don't perceive time the same way that humans do. They, they basically have access to the future and the past all at once. You know, They can kind of go wherever they want to in the fourth dimension at will. And it turns out that Amy Adams, by learning this language has actually unlocked that ability to where she, too, can perceive the future and the past and the present simultaneously, which uh, I was uh, doing research on this movie, and they were talking about the way that this movie uses the Kuleshov effect, which the Kuleshov effect is a, uh, a concept in like filmmaking where you show a shot, and then another shot, and then a reverse of the first shot, and whatever you put in that second shot will inform how you interpret that third shot. So they, the example oh, that they use is... yeah, yeah, yeah. ...is you, uh, you show a an old man, you know, with, like, a straight face, and then you show... A, a, there'll be another shot, and then it comes back to the old man, and he's smiling. And they say, you know, depending on what you put in there, you'll interpret that in different ways. So if you put, like, you know... Uh, like a dog playing, like on a in the grass or whatever. It's like, oh, the old man. He thinks that the dog is cute. But if you put like a scantily clad young girl in that second shot, it's like, oh, okay, this dude's smiling because he's a creep. But you only think that because of how you're interpreting the way that those shots interact with each other. Right. And the, it's the way, same image of
0: the old man. Yes.
1: Right. Yes. Exactly. The exact same images. So the the way that it, they use it in the movie is at the very beginning, you see. Amy Adams go through this lifetime of her daughter who she, you know, is raising and then gets cancer and then dies. Then the next thing that we see is her like kind of despondent, kind of in a daze walking through the college where she teaches. And we
0: assume she's carrying that baggage. Yes.
1: So we assume, Oh, okay. She's like sad and depressed because her daughter died. But spoiler alert, mega twist. None of that happened. And that's yet. all yet to happen in the future because the dude that she has that kid with is Jeremy Renner, who she doesn't even meet until they go to the alien spaceship. And she yes. was so you're she, right. They're playing perce- with,
0: they're playing with the audience's thought, thoughts. It's yes. like, we didn't tell you that this was a chronological you assumed.
1: And then it turns out to be this, like, so they use it. Number one, they use that whole time perception thing as a way for her to actually solve the problem of, dealing with the aliens because they are trying to get the chinese to stand down and what she does is she goes into the future of a conversation that she has with the chinese military commander and she says oh i called you what did i tell you when i talked to you he said oh you told me it's something that my like dead wife told me and so i knew that you knew what you were talking about and that i should believe you and then she goes back like then she's like, okay, back in the present moment. Then she calls the general and tells him that. And like that's how they uh you know solved the the situation. And then it also comes into play at the end because she now has this ability to perceive time this way. So she knows because her her and Jeremy Renner are kind of having forming this relationship. And so right, she knows right. she knows for a fact she that if they continue this relationship that they will have a child, and that child will get cancer and die a horrible, agonizing death from yeah, cancer. like,
0: age 10 or whatever, yeah. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. like, as a, as a young kid. But she chooses, which, and that's kind of ambiguous even in the movie, uh, it's like, well, is that is it saying then that there's no free will because she's already seen the future, or does, can she change that future? But she chooses to continue the relationship with Jeremy Renner's character anyway, because it's kind of like, yeah, I know this is going to be painful, it's going to suck, our relationship's going to fall apart, my kid's going to die, but the good parts will be worth it, essentially.
0: Yeah, I, I, yeah, I definitely saw it as uh, better to have loved and lost than never to have loved at all, exactly. as applying to even your own children. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, I thoroughly enjoyed this movie. It was my number six from 2016, it looks like. So a couple spots behind uh, <laughs> Sing Street, <laughs> but no, I really enjoyed it. And again, I, I'm i in love with Amy Adams. And I, I don't know. I I think it, this is definitely right up my alley. I felt like maybe it was a little too dependent on on the gimmick. Uh, yeah, and I and I hate to use that word because it right. sounds derogatory. But yeah, that's yeah. the exact word I was trying to think of a synonym for. <laughs> and so I, I so it works. Despite this "quote-unquote" gimmick, it still does absolutely work. But I feel like maybe that's, that's not all it has going for it. It is cool. It is great. You know, again, I'm a big uh, Denis Villeneuve fan, like you you are. And no, I, I highly recommend it. I just don't have it ranked as high. I, that's all I can say. Okay, I, I have nothing against it. I just don't have it ranked as high. Okay,
1: yeah. So uh, a couple extra notes that I've have here: um, the music uh, is again, it's the score by Johan Johansson, uh, same guy from Sicario. Um, so I, I guess him and Denis Villeneuve must have a pretty good working mm. relationship. Um, Oscar-wise, uh, it had one Oscar win for best sound editing. Um, it got a, a bunch of nominations though. Uh, best picture, which it lost to Moonlight. Uh, Denis Villeneuve was directed or was uh, nominated for best director, which he lost to Damien Chazelle for La La Land that year. Best adapted screenplay again, it lost to Moonlight. Which I, I, I don't know. I think I think if I was voting, I would probably vote for Arrival over i think it just has more that i haven't seen before more new ideas i guess i i don't know
0: no right i and and again yeah i moonlight's not on either of our lists and i've I've talked about it in the past
1: um and then cinematography uh film editing production design and sound mixing i got nominated for all those but
0: and of course it's it's that's just kind of very telling the ones i the ones I like have all the acting nominations, <laughs> and the ones you like have all the technical nominations. Yeah, yeah. but yeah. but they are both high caliber, you yes. know, uh, movies for sure. Right. And then on Rotten Tomatoes, it's, it's a ninety four percent audience score, eighty two. So a little bit of a split there. Mm. But again, no one hates this movie. No, and, <laughs> and
1: I, the reason that the audience score isn't probably you know high eighties or nineties is you know the the high concept sci fi stuff uh, yes, can be a little yes. bit
0: alienating. Um, and a lot of times those quote-unquote gimmicky movies are a little more popcorn yeah it's not popcorn right so exactly yeah yeah yeah. um but no i i I definitely recommend it okay so my number three and i this might just be a guilty pleasure i talk about movies just kind of working or not working and i feel like this movie was just custom made for me and I can't even defend it that strongly other than I'm that it was made for me. Okay. And it's midnight in Paris from 2011.
1: Okay. I see. I don't have it on my list, but I know that I know how much you love this movie because, well, yeah, we, we've, we've
0: talked about it before. Um, but yeah. And, and so, and it kinda, I talked about, so the, I said the fighter is kind of flawless. There are a lot of flaws with midnight in Paris. I I will admit that some of the acting is kinda hokey and over the top, but at the same time, I don't feel like it's a movie that's trying to be trying to pretend to be anything it's not. This it so Spoiler alerts again, kind of from the beginning here. So the whole premise is that Owen Wilson is over vacationing in Paris with his fiancée, played by Rachel McAdams, and he's a struggling writer. Actually, I don't want to say that. He's not a struggling writer because he's a very, very successful Hollywood screenwriter, but he's not finding that work rewarding at all. He's basically just taking these four higher jobs that he doesn't feel like he's actually expressing himself creatively. So he's working on a novel where he can actually kind of do his own thing. Anyway, so one night, he kind of stumbles upon this, it's not even exactly a portal, he's just kind of at this certain intersection in Paris, where at midnight, this old car from the 20s rolls by, and it's got actual people from the 20s, so it's basically like a time travel movie, where it just kind of happens, all of a sudden he's just in 1920s Paris, And it's kind of this overlap where the car comes by and it's in the modern world. But when he takes the car, he ends up in 1920s Paris. And then he kind of just goes back into modern Paris and is trying to, you know, doesn't actually explain it because everyone would think he was crazy. And when he does kind of explain it, they think it's a metaphor or something. Anyway, but it's just fascinating. And so I I do tend to like films where writers are prominent characters. I just kind of always empathize with them and... Then you're meeting these historical figures, and it's just so much fun meeting, you know, everyone from Hemingway to F. Scott Fitzgerald and his wife Zelda, and we see Salvador Dali make a cameo, and just, it's so fun. And then he meets a fictional character, played by Marion Cotillard, who kind of, he falls in love with, and basically, she kind of serves as a proxy for him to realize that his fiance Rachel McAdams, in the present, is not a good fit for him. yeah. And it's kind of just he realizes that he may, may, starts to recognize maybe what he wants out of life. And, and if anything, the difference between the two women is the difference between the things he's dealing with professionally where, yes, Hollywood screenwriting makes me a lot of money, but I'm, it, I, I, it's not what I really want. And so, yes, Rachel McAdams is beautiful and smart and she is a good person. We see her. She's not particularly almost kind of two dimensionally cruel to him at times in the film but she's not a bad person she's just she's really not and but then and then Marion Cotillard is more of the artistic and uh, bohemian style where i'm not as concerned with the money and 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 what's fun is it nostalgia is a heavy theme to the movie so he's kind of sees 1920s paris with all these american expats as this kind of perfect idealistic time that he would love to live in but Marion Cotillard's character sees Basically, thirty years earlier in the belly, belly puck uh, era in Paris, with like Toulouse Lautrec and some of these other people as the ideal time, and so she's nostalgic in the same way. And then, of course, there's a whole thing where they end up going back within her time period to another <laughs> to thirty years earlier, and she's blown away. And he's like, "Well, yeah, I'm from like 2010, so I don't <laughs> know what to tell you." <laughs> and it's it's so so much fun. It's silly, but. I, for me, it's just infinitely rewatchable. I could put Midnight in Paris on a loop in the background infinitely, and I would be happy. It, I just I, it, so again, I, I recognize it's not necessarily a great movie, although it's a ninety-three percent on Rotten Tomatoes on the critic side. Audience is still a solid eighty-three. And it did win an Oscar for Best Original Screenplay, which is, of course, <laughs> the kind of movies that I like. Um, it was nominated for Best Picture and Best Directing and then Art Direction. Surprisingly, no acting nominations. But I don't know. What do you think about Midnight in Paris? Or have you even seen it recently? Uh,
1: I think I... When did it come out? 2010 or 2011? 20, uh, 2011. Okay. I, that was the last time that I saw it. Then I think I saw it when it like first came out on DVD or video, maybe. I, I mean I, I remember liking it but I I I didn't, uh, it didn't obviously didn't blow Shrek my pants off yeah, as yeah, much as it does yeah. uh, as much as it does for you um cuz I I mean I didn't have it anywhere on my list so I All don't right. even think I put it in my honorable mentions but I, I it's probably just cuz I it's just not a movie that I really think about
0: that much Yeah and and again another one where I kind of expected it to fall cuz I knew I, I knew I li- I'd seen it a couple times before mm-hmm. I absolutely loved it in 2011 And I just assumed because I knew it wasn't necessarily solid filmmaking. Honestly, similar to like I mentioned, Almost Famous. I absolutely, Almost Famous is one of my all time favorite movies. Yeah. But I recognized it's kind of has some flaws in the filmmaking itself and some of the acting. Same thing here. But I just, I forgive it all. I just adore this movie. And I, I, another one that I bought because it was only a couple of dollars cheaper to buy versus rent on Amazon. And, And so just. Can't get it. Oh, and Wilson is definitely the proxy for what would have been a Woody Allen played character sure. thirty years earlier. Yeah, but but I think does it well. And I was honestly, I think does it better. I think he's just a better actor mm-hmm. than Woody. And again, even though it's again, it's it's probably not a great performance. And there's a lot of kind of wooden and two dimensional characters. But I, I mentioned uh, what was the movie I mentioned was Charming, probably Sing Street, and just that similar kind of sentiment. And I just yeah, I just I just The in Paris. I, I could watch it forever yeah it's funny that you talk about like expecting movies to fall like i
1: kind of had the same thing on my list where so i i I made like a list of i don't know maybe 15 to 20 movies that i'm like okay i'm pretty sure these are going to be you know my top 10 are going to fall somewhere in here and i made like a tentative 10 list and i would go through and watch and uh yeah expected like okay like this one i i remember really liking it um but you know maybe if, if i watch it again maybe it'll fall and then no it turns out that watching it again just like made it you know even better like solidified it's spot on the
0: list yeah you're right right exactly solidifies a good word yeah for sure so what is your number three
1: so my number three uh 2014 movie written and directed by alex garland which you mentioned before ex machina hey. is my number three of the decade
0: and so far, i'm curious how these last two play out but that me, is too. Currently, me too me too i that don't currently the, don't the only overlapping film so far, yeah. And yes. I think I think I'm gonna be I'm gonna I'm gonna bet it might remain so. So that's it, that's gonna be interesting. Okay. So yeah, let's talk about Ex Machina. I I dig it.
1: Yeah, so um this is a I'm pretty sure this is a directorial debut for Alex Garland, at least feature film, which I mean, man, this dude he's gonna have a killer career. He's gonna make some classics. I mean at Ex Machina it probably already will be one. Uh, but did did you uh, did you see Annihilation? The Natalie Portman Oscar. Yeah. Movie.
0: And I, d- I didn't like it's, it near so, as much.
1: No, 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 no. It's, it's not nearly as good. Um, but it is, it's a cool, it's another cool kind of high concept sci-fi movie with really cool visuals and some really heady stuff. Um, then he also has a show devs, um, on Hulu, which I haven't seen yet, but I, I've heard good things about, seen. but anyway, um, yeah. So ex machina, man, where to start? Uh, the visuals in this movie are absolutely insane. um, alicia vikander as the robot it looks like they did that practically which i know for a fact they didn't because i've seen the behind the scenes yeah she's not actually a robot what do you mean practically she's not literally a robot but like but it is flawless like oh yeah the the, the effects so hold up and in her performance her performance is so good like she is so good at acting like just Barely like just like ninety-nine percent of a person. Like it's just ah, like Ah, it's like it's yeah, almost, well said. It's almost She's there. perfect AI. It's like the, she's edge, AI. the edge of the uncanny valley.
0: Yeah. Like
1: the way that she that she, you know, will phrase certain things, it's like, man, it's like that's that's not really how a human would say that, but like obviously she is a human, but the way that she's playing it was
0: just so good. Well, and she's almost that Perfect, kind of beautiful. That if you had told me, oh no, she's she's not even a real person. They just completely CG rendered that character. I'd be like, oh really? Like you'd would buy it yeah. for a second. Yeah,
1: which I think is why she uh was like. Well, I, I don't know. This might be like a conspiracy theory, but that might be why they picked her to play Laura Croft in the Tomb Raider movies.
0: Like, <laughs> oh, you're just because like- she is a. She is a video game.
1: You just look like you are an animated person. Like, you just
0: don't (laughs) look Right, because you just kind of like, yeah, if you're going to, okay, draw a beautiful woman with no other specifics. It's just like, yeah, okay, you you, you You draw Alicia Vikander. Alicia Vikander, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um,
1: Oscar Isaac, super, super good performance in this. I'm trying to think if before this, what I would have seen Oscar Isaac in and, like, actually remembered him as Oscar Isaac... Uh, oh, ag-
0: agreed. This is kind of the first time he was on my radar, and then retroactively, I started realizing he was in a lot of other things, yeah, like yeah. like uh, Drive with Ryan Gosling. Yep, yeah, I, that was in my honorable mentions. I think there was other stuff too, but I and it's, it's, I'm drawing a
1: blank. But yeah, this was uh, definitely when he kind of like came on the scene as like, oh, like this. He's not just like a character actor. Like this dude, this dude is a star. Like this dude can actually carry pack some serious punches you know carry some serious weight um on screen um and then Donald Gleason, always a fan of that dude um he always kills oh, yeah. it yeah it's man it's such a cool concept for a movie to have you know the the whole turing test thing i i think is always is super fascinating and then the fact that he like gets so wrapped up in it that there's that scene in the movie where he like punches the mirror and he like cuts his arm open with a razor blade Almost like he's like, man, like, am I even sure that I'm a real human anymore? Like, right, now that I right. know, now that I know what's possible, now that I know that, okay, this dude has actually built these robots. What if I'm a robot and he just programmed all these memories in me, and I ha- am
0: actually an AI? Right, and that's the Turing test—is he's yeah. trying to figure out if he can tell if I'm real or not? Yeah, and, yeah, um, man, that actually makes me think, and this—it's actually kind of relevant to this movie. So, like, the whole concept that. If we think it is possible that one day we will be able to replicate reality perfectly with computers, that your consciousness could be in a simulation and you could not tell the difference, if that is one day possible... Then that has already happened. Then odds are we're already in the simulation. Yes. If it's it's going to happen eventually, odds are we're already in the simulation because what are the odds we're in the first time through right now? Right, yep. Like, astronomically small. So if you believe it's possible you should probably believe we're in it right now. Yep. And, but again, that's kind of related to what you, that definitely is kind of with the themes of Ex Machina. And again, so this is the one I, I mean, I had it at number nine and it was probably one that I probably initially planned on it being kind of up where you have it. And when I rewatched it, I still absolutely enjoyed it, but I, I may just, just a, I, a few flaws. I couldn't even pinpoint maybe where I was just like, ah, some of this writing is some of just a little too cutesy, maybe kind of like the arrival stuff where it's a little gimmicky. Again, I absolutely forgive it. It's just some reason I had it in number 9 for the decade instead of number 3 or number 2 for the yeah. decade. So, yeah. it's still absolutely mind-blowing, super relevant and for being, you know, 5 years old, 4 years old, definitely holds up. Super curious to see how well it continues to hold up as technology advances. And I feel like this is one you're going to be able to come back to for decades. Yes. And I mean,
1: I don't see
0: how the
1: effects could have been improved. I mean, even True. and even right, even the stuff where he's talking to um, the the so the other his his like waitress or like servant um, who you find yeah. out is is an AI robot. There's a scene where she like peels her skin off, and that it looks 100 percent real. Like she takes her whole face off, and she, you know you see all the all the robot workings, her eyeballs and her like robot skeleton. But it it looks obviously i know this isn't the case because it's impossible but it looks like they did that practically it looks like she <laughs> actually took her face off
0: right right it is man it's so yeah. good and, when, and then when alicia puts on the skin at the end it's same thing it's like yep my only issue with that yeah like the sizing was the only thing it's like that does that's not the same body but anyway but like it's yeah nitpicking nitpicking it's beautiful social effects and what's funny is and not to you know steal your thunder on the effects thing but for it being on both our lists which two oscars would you guess it's nominated for oh it won for visual effects which is why you have it at number three yep. and it was nominated for a visual screenplay which yep. is why i have it at number nine <laughs> like it's it's the perfect juxtaposition yes. of what we're looking for in yes, a movie
1: exactly exactly <laughs> yeah. yeah oh man oh and there so uh this is kind of a a minor thing but At the very end of the movie, when the two robots, like, team up to murder Oscar Isaac with the kitchen knife. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. It is so unsettling. Yes. The way, like, just the the way that it looks and the way that it looks and how much sound there isn't when they're, like, it's it's almost like they're taking that knife and just sticking into, like, room temperature butter and just zoop just right in
0: but I, but I think that's realistic i think i think a lot of times you get to fight scenes or anything violent we over add sound effects yes like yes, pun- punches aren't that loud
1: no right yeah 100
0: so so right i think you slide a knife into someone's stomach you don't hear much yeah especially when they don't scream and it's, he doesn't scream and
1: it's got to be it's got to be tempting to like have the foley artist be like all right yeah i'm gonna make like you're gonna hear
0: like the, a like a like a sound. The slice. Yeah, and you're
1: gonna hear the blood and maybe a little bit of like bone scrapage. Like, man, this is gonna be visceral as hell. But it's like, right. oh, like you know, Alex Garland's nope. like, nope, I I want no sound. I want it to just,
0: I just want you just gonna see it.
1: Oh, it's it's like it's almost hard to watch. It's like you can feel it. You're like. Oh, you're like
0: cringing stuff Oh, absolutely. Like I was not looking forward to that scene. It was uncomfortable. That was one of the things that stood out. Yeah, it stood out to me on the first viewing, on the second viewing. I was dreading it in anticipation. Yep. I was like, I don't want to watch that part. Yeah, Because sure. it is so tough to watch. And uh, there actually, I think, is one of my nitpicks is Oscar Isaac's character's lack of foresight in some certain things. I think there's certain things that he either should have been able to predict or... Would would have predicted based on what we know of the character. So my my minor nitpicks just have to do with I don't know. So I, I feel like he would have covered his bases better.
1: I so here's the thing. So I okay I have a different opinion about that because I okay. think his overconfidence was his weakness, kind of thing. No, I think he did it all on purpose. I think oh he was, suicide by AI. I think he's sad, depressed, and suicidal. And the real Turing test was to design a robot an AI that would, that the real Turing test was for it to escape because you have to, th- you have to think that with all of the, because, it, and they show it to you. They show it to you at the beginning when the power goes out and all the doors lock. He said, Oh, it's a security thing. All the doors lock when the power goes out. So we know for a fact, right. That Oscar Isaac's character is super security conscious and security minded, but there are no fail. Once that robot leaves the house, it is free to roam the world. There's no like anti-robot turrets out there waiting to blow it up which you would think that there would be if he was actually trying to keep this robot from getting anywhere. I think that he th- that that was his like his contribution to history. And once he accomplished that, he's like, "All right, like that's it. I'm done." And not only am I done, but like the human race is done because we don't we don't need to be humans anymore because now we can have, you know, there's going to be robots. It's the age of the AI. I think he did it all on purpose, and I think the real test for Ava, which is Alicia Vikander's robot character, I
0: think the real test was for her to escape the house and make it out into society. Fascinating. I dig that a lot. And I don't know if you've seen Westworld on HBO. Uh, the first two seasons, yeah, I haven't seen okay. the new season. I would say this is a better version of, the, of, of, of oh, thematically, too. Way better, so, yeah. Yeah, so this is, again, it, I enjoy Westworld. It's entertaining. This is better. This is a better version of what Westworld's going for, and, and and we don't have to go off on a Westworld tangent. But Westworld's not as smart as it thinks it is. Right. Ex Machina kind of is. It's yeah. it's only as smart as it thinks it is. It's it's not trying to do more, pretend it's more than it is. Right. But it's a lot. And, so and it's it again when you're when you're talking about
1: these high concept sci fi movies like Ex Machina, you you know conventional wisdom I guess would say make a big make there be these cool action scenes make you know have like we, we got to tell a story of like all these scientists are working on it you know but this is like the whole movie takes place in this one house and there are four characters one of which doesn't talk for the whole movie which is the right the other ai and you know one's a robot and then there's two
0: quote-unquote real people and and that's that's it Um, the title itself, so it's actually, there's a common phrase in writing called deus es machina, where basically it's considered a mistake in your writing. If you basically have the heroes are saved at the end by something you haven't set up and it just comes out of nowhere, it's a deus es machina, which means, uh, basically God from the machine. So you just kind of like... Pulled the ending out of nowhere. So they took off the deus and it's just ex machina or from the machine. So this title is Latin for from the machine. Yes. Which is just just kind of interesting and definitely fits thematically and within it, everything. It else.
1: also fits. Well, actually two things. One, a sh- really short little side note um, in the Matrix trilogy at the very end of the trilogy, like when Neo sacrifices himself, he's talking to like the, the baby, like the giant baby face that's made out of all the other robots. The name of that baby is Deus Ex Machina. <laughs> if you look in the credit, um, which I that's it. neither here nor there. Uh, but in this, in in Ex Machina, there's this scene where um, Donald Gleason says something about. He doesn't call Oscar Isaac a god, but then when Oscar Isaac quotes him later, he's <laughs> yes. like, "Oh yeah, I really like that cool thing that you said about me being a god." And Don Lewis is like, "Uh, that's that's not what I said." He's like, "Yeah, but like it was cool how you called me a god and everything." He's like, "No, I, I didn't, I didn't <laughs> call you a god." He's like, "Yeah, but like when you called me a god, I thought that was pretty cool." Um, so I yes, thought that yes. you know it's, it's cool that like you know Oscar Isaac kind of sees himself as a god, and then he creates this AI that basically self realizes. Um, and turns into a full-fledged conscious being and defeats him, thereby kind of taking the mantle of the of the god. So you know, Deus God in the Machine. Deus Ex Machina. Interesting.
0: And and so a couple things. One, if our if neither of our ones or twos match here, uh-huh. you can make an argument right now that Ex Machina is our consensus best movie of the decade. Because which, it'd be the only movie on both lists. Which I would be and fine And I'm kind of with. okay with. And I'm kind of okay with. I would be and okay then, with, for sure. And then the other thing I was going to say is, the one of the biggest things I could say about this movie, as much as we've just talked about it, we've told you nothing. No. there is. There is we've basically have said, we've even kind of spoiled some certain things, but we've actually said nothing about the movie. Yeah. And that's just because it, it gives the whole philosophy, and it's it's just... You, yeah uh absolutely fascinating it's, really, it's a really dense movie yes and it, although it's not particularly long it's a 92 percent on rotten tomatoes yep. on the critic side 86 on the audience side so everybody loves it it's only an hour and 48 minutes yep. it's it's pretty it's actually a pretty simple movie which is yeah. weird to say because it's also complex like it's Ah, it's again, it's like I'm almost looking forward to us not matching, so I can come back and now say <laughs> that we agree this is the movie of the decade. And yeah. and I don't know if I mentioned like this was my favorite movie of twenty fifteen. So yeah. it's it's definitely you know it kind of, you know, quote unquote fell to nine, but I I mean I I'm with you. Yeah. This movie is amazing. I
1: had a uh which you talked before about how it won for visual effects and uh was nominated for screenplay. I was surprised um, going back and looking at it, that it wasn't nominated for more Oscars, but honestly 2014 was, like, such a stack year with Spotlight, The Big Short, uh, Mad Max, The Martian, The Revenant, like, it was kind of a And something stacked... like Mad Max
0: kind of takes its lane.
1: Yeah, yeah. In some ways. And, yeah. and, 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 you know, it's also, the heady sci-fi stuff doesn't always do super well at the Oscars anyway. Correct.
0: Um, but... It's kind of two genre like it's not it's not like this blockbuster movie with this concept right like no 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 it's a concept movie yeah
1: yeah for sure
0: okay we're down to our top twos all right and this one again I I hope I can look back in 10 years and not feel like this is just recency bias and in some ways I think fear of recency bias might be the primary reason I put this at number two and not number one. I think I know what you're gonna say but go ahead. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood.
1: Oh, okay. That's not I thought that's not what I thought you were gonna
0: say. Oh, you think I was gonna go Parasite? I did, yeah. Um, I had Parasite in my top twenty, not my top ten. Okay. All right. Yeah, I, I didn't have Once Upon a Time in Hollywood on my Yeah. List. So I I've I've long been a Tarantino fan, and I say that as someone who didn't particularly love uh the Hateful Eight. I didn't particularly love Django Unchained, or at least the last the last I didn't think it ended well, but I do love *Inglorious Bastards* and obviously, you know, Pulp Fiction and Kill Bill, you know, definitely movies of the, the previous decade for me there and yeah. you know Pulp Fiction my all-time favorite movie. So I've, I've long been a Tarantino fan and I went into this movie with very high expectations and it it uh it subverts a lot of your expectations. I, I, I kind yeah. of like to say that this is both the most and least tarantino movie yet yeah it in that it kind of focuses more on a lot of his dialogue which is very unique and inventive and people often forget when they think tarantino i think they all too often think violence and crazy plotting yeah and you forget that one of tarantino's strengths arguably his biggest strength is his ability to write dialog mm-hmm and i just you know i just think of you know those iconic scenes of pulp fiction where you got you know hitmen talking about pop culture and then I, my favorite scene from glorious bastards where you have michael fassbender's character who lights up a cigarette when he realizes he's screwed yeah. and just says you know if i'm you know if i'm going to i do you mind if i go out speaking the kings yeah. and just like oh just the dialogue is just on point anyway so in once upon a time in hollywood Tarantino, who has this, obviously, this career-long reputation for being a lover of film and a lover of Hollywood itself, finally sets a movie in Hollywood in 1969 using the Manson murders as kind of a backdrop and a red herring at the same time. Right. yep. And it's... So I, I call this... And even the title, and I feel like I haven't heard any other critics mention this... But the title, Once Upon a Time, dot, 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 in Hollywood. So yeah. dot, dot, dot is actually in the title. But the Once Upon a Time, what does that tell you? It's a fairy tale. Yep. Quentin Tarantino made a fairy tale. And that's exactly what we get here, where it's idealized, there's heroes, there's villains, and but it's also deep on philosophical levels with Leonardo DiCaprio's character dealing with uh, what could be the end of his career and trying to figure out how to revitalize his career without compromising what he wants from his self as a, as an actor, you know, juxtaposed with his buddy, Brad Pitt's character, who is kind of a guy who's never really made it and always just kind of ridden on Leo's coattails here, but he's kind of just totally cool with that and just kind of always going with the flow and just, again, Tarantino does characters like no one else. Brad Pitt uh, won the Oscar for this. I actually think Leo was the better performance and should have won. Yep, And, I, I th- think we can I, both I, agree I, on that for sure, right? And I actually feel like if Leo had not won for the Revenant, I think he wins here for sure. Yeah, and I think I think the Revenant is the reason he did not win for this, and they gave it to Joaquin. And again, Joaquin was—I don't really like the Joker. Joaquin was great in it, but I don't think it's necessarily a good movie. Yeah, but I, I, I think I think. As good as Joaquin was I think they easily give it to Leo and then of course then I wonder if that affects Brad because Brad is so clearly not as good as Leo does he get his lifetime achievement if they're rewarding Leo at the same time and yeah anyway so I mean it's just so so immersive I know this is one I did see twice in the theater which I normally don't do uh-huh um I but I, I did it was it was my favorite movie from last year I did I did see it twice it totally holds up when you know that's the big thing too it, it's kind of like a three billboards you don't know if it's gonna hold up when you know what's happening absolutely holds up when you know what's going to happen like it's almost better the second time i look forward to, to re, re-watching it again some some filmmakers you know i think like a kevin smith where i actually like like him as a person better than i like him as a filmmaker oh for sure I'm, yeah and so <laughs> tarantino's kind it's of the, the opposite, opposite. <laughs> i'm not i he is an all-time great filmmaker absolutely. who is going to be studied yep. for centuries or as long as people are studying filmmakers it's weird now because we're still in the middle of his career and his you know he basically didn't make it onto the scene until you know less than 30 years ago whereas you know someone like you know scorsese's got 20 years on him but you look back 50 years from now 100 years from now it's gonna be tarantino and hitchcock and like it's it's gonna be it might start and stop there for a lot of people. If you're talking hundred years from now, yeah. I think a Spielberg might fade more than yeah. a Tarantino hundred years from now. Again, they'll all be discussed. They're all great filmmakers. They're all spectacular artists yep. and groundbreaking in so many ways. But yeah, no,
1: I, I think that people are gonna when I think that by the by the time his career is over, people are going to talk about Tarantino with just as much reverence, if not more, than somebody like a Stanley Kubrick, like someone right. who just like right. Like, damn near cannot miss when it comes to making movies. Granted, right. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, I wasn't nearly as high on it um, as you were. I, you know, I, I, I liked it. Um, I definitely thought, like, uh, Leo's performance is great. The scene where he has the little girl on his lap, that is, mm. oh, man, that's like, again, we're talking, like, you know, best scenes from the last 10 years. I think that's for sure um, in the conversation. The Brad Pitt walking around the uh, the ranch scene, is super suspenseful in all the best ways and it also kind of is one of those you know subverts your expectations when it turns out that mm-hmm. everything's like fine and hunky-dory and they were telling the truth to him basically the entire time <laughs> he was there um uh, <laughs> you just think they're not because you know you know right. because if you're you're you know that they're yep. a- about to go you know murder sharon tate basically but yeah it it's uh it's good um i didn't have it on my list but i can i can understand why you have it on yours
0: yeah, well, and and you're kind of even bringing up stuff that I that I hadn't even thought about this way. So you're talking about oh the favorite scenes. I'm going through. I might be able to come up with more quote unquote favorite scenes from this movie alone than the rest of the movies we've talked about so far combined. Oh wow! Okay. Like I'm just I'm just like every scene is iconic. It's like the 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 ultimate confrontation at, at the end. I mean Sharon yep. going to the movie that she's in. Yeah. Uh, the, Leo in the trailer. Brad on the roof. The the flashback to Bruce Lee. Like this. Oh my, I'm, yeah, I, I, the re- recency bias me damned. This, this movie is, it's legit and I, uh, it's, yeah. Uh, let me go over the, so o- Oscar wise, holy cow. So this is one of his most successful Oscar movies. One, two, three. Okay.
1: Four, and I, I think it's because he's getting to the point in his career where he's like, you know, he's being, uh, recognized for more than just the, the violence and the crazy plotting. Like I think now the Academy is kind of starting to see like, all right, you know what? Actually, this dude is a legit god tier level filmmaker,
0: and we haven't awarded him at the Academy enough. Right? Yeah. He's basically got like what one writing award? Yeah, but I mean,
1: but but when you you talk about the best movies of the last twenty years, and Pulp Fiction's always in that conversation, Reservoir Dogs is always in that conversation, Kill Bill, uh, you know, Inglourious Bastard, Mass- like they're all there. Even the movies that are like of his that are you know quote unquote not as good, like not as good for Tarantino is still like film classics, like Hateful Eight right. and Django Unchained. They're still classics, but right. they're just not his best work.
0: <laughs> right. I talk, we So we talked about, oh, yo, know, Django is lesser Tarantino. You know, the mo- one of the movies he won best uh, screenplay for. Right. Yeah, exactly. So he, he has he's won two Oscars. He won for writing Pulp Fiction and he won for writing uh, Django Unchained. And then... So Inglorious Bastards has 10 sorry. <laughs> <laughs> 40 <Freudian> slip. <laughs> um so Once Upon a Time in Hollywood has 10 Oscar nominations. It won for Brad Pitt supporting actor and it won for production design for its replication of of old-time Hollywood, but it's nominated for Best Picture, Best Director, Leo Best Screenplay, Cinematography, Costume Design, Sound Mixing and, and Sound Editing. Just a, a absolute classic there. So this is divisive. We're going to get into the divisiveness. So this is only an 85% on Rotten Tomatoes for the critics and a 70% for the audience, which, which is a little low. Yeah,
1: but I, I can see that because when, when you're going to see a Tarantino movie, you have certain expectations. Especially if the only Tarantino movies that you've, got, that you've seen are Inglorious Bastards and Django Unchained. You know what I mean? Like you, mm. you have you expect it to be a certain way, and then you show up, and it's this. It's it's not super crazy violent, barring the final battle scene at the end. But really, the bulk of the movie is a Tarantino love letter to nineteen sixties and nineteen seventies Hollywood, and if, right buttoned with
0: one cathartic, violent ending. Right. That's a little Tarantino. If you're
1: going yeah. in expecting a Tarantino movie about the Charlie Manson murders. And then you get what once upon a time in Hollywood actually is. I can see why people say, "Oh, that's that's bullshit." Like that's not at all what I expected it to be. Especially because in the trailer, I'm pretty sure they showed the uh, Manson family like walking up the street to Sharon Tate's right. house, and right. so it's kind of like, okay, like that's what this movie's about, but it's it's not. That's almost like a side plot. Like it's not even the main
0: part. Well, it, it's a, it's a, it's a red herring. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And, and, and again, so I would say those two, if we are talking about a fairy tale, she's the princess, but we get, we get the fairy tale ending. So again, I think here's where a lot of the hate comes from on the critic side. The reason it's not higher than an 85. I think it is the people, you literally would have had Hollywood voters, who were friends with Sharon Tate and were voting for the Oscars. Yeah.
1: I mean, for God's sake, she was married to Roman Polanski, who's still... Exactly.
0: And yeah. Right. Who's still around and won, won the best director for The Pianist in yeah. like 0102. And so there was some, some buzz, and I haven't heard this from people specifically who knew Polanski or Tate, but the, the idea that Tarantino's being disrespectful to her memory by altering what happened. And I actually would argue the opposite that for people who knew and loved Sharon Tate and you know forget Roman Polanski but right. people who knew and loved Sharon Tate I I would imagine how joyful to get to live in this fantasy world where he creates an alternate alternate history with a happy ending and what could have been for Sharon Tate that the movie builds up as she is kind of the flawless princess in this movie she is unimpeachable yeah and you get to have her Live, I mean that's I I, that that's the fantasy that we're given, and I think that I don't see I see that as a gift to Sharon Tate's memory, not an insult to it, for sure. And hey, I mean, other people can have their own opinion on it, but that's the way I see it. Yeah, and I I think it I think it was a really good touch.
1: The so the scene where she goes and watches her own movie is charming as all hell. Again, another probably in contention for best scenes of the last ten years. You know, talk. The more we talk about this movie, the more I think I actually <laughs> yeah, realize that yeah, I actually like it more it. than I thought I did. You need to, you need to rewatch um, it, <laughs> but I think I think it was a a really a a good choice to use the actual Sharon Tate footage, like the yes. actual her actual performance. Um, right? They didn't and have, have Margot redo it? Have yeah. Margot Robbie reacting to that? Like, oh, I'm watching myself, but have it actually be Sharon Tate? I think that was so much better than if they would have tried to recreate it cg or just you know reshoot it or whatever I, agree. Um, I think having the actual footage was i think that is is another thi- another piece of evidence that you know goes firmly in the tarantino is being respectful to sharon tate's memory camp versus the uh, the flip
0: yeah i i love this movie it's so good it's so good okay your number two movie of the decade so my
1: number two movie of the decade is is a 2016 movie uh it is another taylor sheridan screenplay directed by david mckenzie hell or
0: high water i uh i kind of cheated when you mentioned sheridan earlier and i was like oh it's gonna be that one so. yeah yeah
1: i so that's why i didn't um that's why i didn't go very much into depth on taylor sheridan um when i was talking about Sicario. Okay. but man i i love his work so for listeners who don't know Taylor Sheridan has written three movies, and they're actually called. There are people who refer to these movies as the American Frontier trilogy, but more kind of contemporary Western. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. They, they call it, you know, it's they're they're neo Western movies. Yeah, um, they're Westerns set in present day. They're not related or anything, um, but they all have a very similar feel. Um, so he wrote two of them. He wrote Hell or High Water and Sicario, um, which Hell or High Water is directed by David McKenzie, who also directed uh, Outlaw King, which did you see that, the Netflix no, I'm not familiar with that. Netflix movie about Robert the Bruce? No, I haven't even heard of it. Oh, you'd like it.
0: Okay, you got me excited.
1: I think. I don't know. It's pretty good. It's Chris Pine is <laughs> Robert the Bruce. Anyways, so, uh, and then his the, the third movie um, in his quote-unquote American Frontier Trilogy is uh, Wind River, which stars uh, Jeremy Renner and Olsen, uh, Elizabeth Olsen which that movie takes place in Montana uh, present day, but like on an Indian reservation, kind of out in the middle of nowhere. Um, And he does, he writes these really cool stories about honestly, parts of America that I don't think very many people probably think about, um, especially if they're not from there or don't visit there very often. Um, Definitely not portrayed in movies that often anymore, but I I don't think a lot of people necessarily realize how big the American West is and how much Mm. of it is still, like, basically just open country. It's, you know, vast and unexplored
0: um, in a lot of cases – uh, I, I drove a couple of years ago. not a yeah, side note. I, I drove a couple of years ago from San Antonio. Well, I drove all the way down to San Antonio. I was driving from San Antonio to Big Bend National Park. Yeah. And it was kind of a drive at night. Yep. And as you kind of toward El Paso, it was like a six hour drive through nothing. It was kind of one of the most scared I've ever been because it was so isolated. The cell phone yes. signals dropping yep. off. on just a straight shot road. Like, but halfway through I get pulled over by or I have, I go with like a, a border patrol check yep. and that was like the only human contact. It was scary. And you were and that the whole time that was just Texas. So you didn't even go was to, just Texas. New Mexico
1: or Arizona or Utah or Montana or Idaho or there is so much land out in the western United States. Right. The, and Taylor Sheridan is doing an awesome job of writing really compelling stories that are hmm. set out here and like it's almost like like the landscape and like the isolation itself is like a character in these movies so specifically in hell or high water um the whole movie takes place in west texas and they do this really a really good job of showing the socioeconomic problems facing west texas nowadays and both like, historical issues. Like, there are a lot of uh, references um, to Native American tribes and all of the the horrible, horrible things that they've gone through in the last 250 years. And then, you know, all the the people who live there now who are, like, descendants of the people who basically ran Native Americans out of West Texas are, you know, the oil money was a a big deal out in West Texas and maybe not so much anymore. There's a lot of, uh, you know, dying towns, a lot of small towns. Um, the, the premise of the movie is two brothers are robbing banks to then pay back those banks to keep their family home basically. And then, and those, so the two brothers are, uh, Chris Pine, um, and Ben Foster, Chris Pine, I'll watch anything that he's in. Um, I, I love Chris Pine. Ben Foster though, he is underrated. So underrated. So underrated. He is a next level amazing actor. And I I can't understand for the life of me why you can't like why you can't make a movie and put Ben Foster's name on the poster and have everyone just be clamoring to see that movie. I mean I know it is for me. Like I between this um messengers 310 to yuma like he has had some awesome performances but
0: most people don't even know who, who Ben Foster is let alone are like big fans of his well and uh so one of my i guess we will call I'll mention my number 16 of the decade was Leave No Trace starring Ben Foster yeah and I don't know if you've seen that one I haven't okay. no um but yeah I, I'll I'll definitely have to check it out because I I Man, he's so good. He's so good. Right. I almost want. I was. I feel like he intentionally takes small parts. I just think he's more interested in the work than the money. Because there's no way. There's no way he's not getting offers, right? Right. And you got to be kidding yeah. me. Yeah. Yeah. He's. Yeah. He's so. So good. One of the best actors that people haven't heard of.
1: For sure. For sure. Um. So those two brothers, they're the two. Uh, the two bank robbers, and then uh, Jeff Bridges is the aging, nearly retired. Like this is his last case. Um, he's a uh, a Texas ranger who's then chasing them from bank robbery to bank robbery, trying to, trying to catch them. I'll try not to go into spoiler territory too much, uh, because I, I, if people haven't seen this movie, I really think they should. It is on Netflix um, oh, at, nice. at time of recording. Uh, yeah, that does change. But uh, yeah, God, it's so good. Uh, they have, like, each little town that they go to kind of has its own you know they're all very similar but they all have their own uh kind of not really culture but like they'll meet different people and uh interact with people who like it it almost feels like they made a documentary about bank robbers because the characters that they're interacting with like when they go to the bank uh they all they all seem so real i wouldn't be surprised if a lot of those people are just people from west texas that they just oh, yeah. kind of got to be in the movie but yeah man it's this is so good and the the interaction between Chris Pine and Ben Foster is awesome between Jeff bridges and Gil Birmingham, who is his partner uh, their dynamic is is really good, which Gil Birmingham is also in uh in Wind River so I think uh, I think him and Taylor Sheridan must be on on good working terms. yeah can't recommend this movie enough. Um, the story's awesome performances are awesome uh, there's some really tense uh bank robbery scenes so it's got a, a cool like heist element to it um but they're they're not like it's not like uh like heat where there's you know it's like a big like big time fancy pants bank in downtown la it's like these tiny little banks
0: out in the middle of nowhere west texas um and it it feels so real yes it's, it's not trying to be hyperbolic or over the top in any way nope. Nope. and i tell you i i, I had it as my number five in 2016 sandwiched right in between sing street and arrival on my list for that year okay and i mean i i can't think i can't fault it for anything so as far as not being everything else that i you've mentioned that i haven't put on my list i kind of had a reason why it wasn't on my list yeah only reason i have for this is it just didn't necessarily stand out Uh in my mind as high yeah but it's a great movie, and I have nothing. I can't say anything yeah. against it.
1: And as as far as uh, I mean, we talk about you know the the Oscars that my favorite movies tend to get nominated for versus yours. This one got nominated for Best Picture, uh, Best Supporting Actor, <laughs> Best Original Screenplay, and then Best Film Editing. Um, it didn't have yeah. any wins. Uh, Supporting Actor Jeff Bridges lost to Mahershala Ali for uh, okay. Moonlight. Uh, Screenplay
0: it lost to Manchester by the Sea, um, and then Best Picture <laughs> Moonlight won that year and i tell you what this is one when i saw it i i, I almost kind of had it i feel like putting it like a number five on my list like i was championing it like it was like no one's heard of this movie it were, it's I, man i hope people see it it's so so good and then it was i think a huge underdog that it got a best picture nomination as this small is anyone even going to see a movie and then it gets four oscar nominations including best picture like i feel like that was a huge uh upset just just getting seen that much i mentioned you know S- sing street no one saw hell or high water was kind of that love well a little bit you know prominent more prominent cast i guess but it was a low low profile movie that cracked in with four oscar nominations yeah. and it's it's really good and it it joins the 97 percent club of ones we've gone through here so far on Ron or Ron tomatoes uh 88 on the audience side so still very very high um okay we are down to our top movies of the decade all right and i do not have any reason to believe we have the same number one I, so
1: <laughs> i don't think we will if if we have if we let me just say this
0: i guarantee we don't but go ahead
1: <laughs> okay i i don't think we do either but i will say if we do have any other movie in common i think it'll be this one
0: so oh gotcha so there's something like ex machina that overlaps yeah i gotcha yeah so we'll see okay but, I already feel bad that I don't have your number one as my number one or on my list at all, apparently. Um, Cause you would have mentioned it if it was something higher. Cause I know that my number one is not your number one because it doesn't check off the right boxes. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Um, and, and frankly, I, I love this movie so much and I feel like I am alone on an island here where no one else sees this movie the same way I do. And I'm, kind of confused both by how other people don't see it the same way or what I'm seeing or what I'm reading into it. And I know I built it up here a bunch for you. So this is my number one movie for 2017 that beat out three billboards that I had as my number six on this list here. It's Itanya. Whoa. Whoa. No, <laughs> I know. Oh, right. Man. Yes. No, I, oh my God. I, I know. I, that's why I was, I know a hundred percent knew it wasn't on your list and left field no and lord all right let's this, let's get into this <laughs> so and, and it, it ties into the same thing when i had it on my list in 2017 so part of it i think was the expectations that the so when i first saw it in 2017 i it was actually like the last movie i watched before i ha- had my list i basically had you know three billboards as the number one and as i'm watching i Tonya, i'm like oh this is really good this is definitely on the list and then like as like the last 10 minutes i'm like Damn, this is number. This is like top three. This year. this might be number two. And then as the credits are starting to roll, I'm like, this is the best movie of the year. Okay. Like I'm just saying, like I was just, like just tears streaming down my so cheeks. I I and, think we've talked about this
1: before. I right. don't. So I guess I didn't realize that you liked it this much. But so I remember talking to you about it because I watched it and I was like, man, like that was a really good performance from Margot Robbie and like boy, what a couple of friggin' goofballs those two guys were. And then, but then after talking to you, you were like, no, but like, she could have been, she came from nothing, works her ass off to be the greatest figure skater that has ever lived, and then it all gets ripped away because of something that is entirely not her fault, but everyone blames her for, and how tragic is that? And I'm like, oh man, you're right. Like, right. that sucks. So,
0: right, and again, and I, and I cannot think of another comp in any genre at all. that or, a, or in real life. No, exactly. So a character who overcomes circumstances to excel in a world that people from her background don't even bother entering in the first place to become, for a brief moment, the best in the world, having done things no one else had ever done in that world, and then the same circumstances she overcom- overcame to succeed reach back up and pull her back down, yep. and she disappears, and she becomes a joke. And I'm getting yep. chills right now. I'm going to start crying right now because the, even the, how the movie breaks the fourth wall, yep. and near the end, she looks at you and says, "That's when you became my abuser as well." Yep. So she has, she's been abused by her mom, she's abused by her husband, and then she points to the camera and says, "No, you, the American public, became my abusers when yep. I became a laughing stock for and, being for my background that I have nothing to do with." And it's. And the the movie does a
1: really good job of showing you, like, how hard it was for her. I mean, obviously, to make it to the top of anything is hard. To be the best figure skater in the world under any circumstances is is difficult, to put it mildly. But the fact that she was, like, viewed as just this, like, oh, you're poor, you're white trash, like, you don't belong here. This This is not a sport for you. This is not a sport for people like you. This is a sport for, you know, high-class, dignified people. You don't belong here. And so it was hard for her just to, yeah, just to get in the door. And and then she right. becomes the best in the world. Which, I mean, <laughs> think about, like, the Disney feel-good movie that you could make if that's where the story stopped. Like... Yeah, she, she came from nothing and was, you know, a pariah in this sport her whole life. But then she overcame all this adversity, and became the best in the world, and went to the Olympics and and won and right, gold. The and, right, the end. Right, the end. end. Hot man, Tanya Harding, you know, American hero, like literally the American dream to come from nothing and be the best in the world at something, right.
0: and not taking it away like injury. Like no, no, no. Like crime yeah. takes it away. Yeah. And not not a, not
1: a crime that she committed, a crime right, that right. some dumb asshole friend of her husband, who's a complete moron, does just like without her permission or say so or or, or knowledge or anything. But then she she takes uh, takes all the heat
0: for it. Right, and and I'm not even going to make a judgment as far as real life versus. I'm I'm talking about the movie we we're right. presented with, yes. but I do think yeah, it's highlighted yeah, yeah. by the real life. And I don't know in real yeah. life. Yeah, I, 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 I don't should know to what extent, I should probably caveat
1: yeah. that by saying when I say you know she had no knowledge and she was completely innocent. I am talking about the movie. I don't I don't actually know that much about the real circumstances outside of what we are shown in the movie. But in the movie, she is shown to not have any knowledge or,
0: uh, yes, not be involved or, in the or, crime. Or, or, or even malice or even malice. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So. And from a filmmaking standpoint, I guess, again, what do I come back to? We started this list <laughs> uh, almost three hours ago talking about <laughs> Jojo Rabbit and how I feel like I had never seen anything like that. And I just, to me, this is also a wholly original movie in the way it deals with. You got a movie about you know domestic abuse and the the tragedy of the of the Nancy Kerrigan attack and you know the role of Tanya Harding and her friends within that, but then it's also a comedy and yeah. but also works so similar to the Jojo Rabbit side of that, and then then the breaking of the fourth wall and so again, I fully expected when I rewatched this that I'm like there's no, it's gonna be like three blow there's no way it's gonna have that same impact on me. It's I. I was like confident it was not gonna hold up, and I'd you know end up putting midnight in Paris or once upon a time in Hollywood at number one or something like that and I was like and i just couldn't i was still same thing i'm just i got the tears i'm laughing out i'm laughing out loud at the big i mean the the line of the movie is. I I, well, I say that, I can't remember it exactly, but it's when they they're cutting all over you know and and the so they have the interviews the fake interviews because it's they're interviewing the actors yeah. after the fact of the story and it's they cut to Allison Janney and she says something like well my storyline's gone to shit <laughs> <laughs> and I'm just like I just lost it on the second time even I'm just like it is it the acting is unreal the script is so good. The themes and and when I talked about my original review from 2017 is the the themes of greatness and just the people to try to excel and try to become the best at anything and then accomplishing that. So for me, that's definitely what it's about is this idea of pursuit of greatness. And she's the ultimate ultimate underdog. We talk about a society that we love the underdog story. Yeah. And her underdog story was never highlighted properly at the time. I, I was I was, you know, cognizant of the Olympics and watching the Olympics when this stuff was going on. Yeah. And I didn't know anything about it and or what she'd overcome to get there. You don't really know these background stories, especially back then, pre-social media. You don't know that she's, and again, I hate to even use this slur, but the equivalent of trailer trash or whatever. Right. And who becomes an Olympic figure skating of all things. Yeah. And then, and then again, when the, the whole Nancy Kerrigan attack happens, you kind of just assume that she's somewhat involved with this just shady crime stuff. And she goes away and, you know, gets into like boxing and stuff. And she was a joke. I grew up. She was a joke, and I'm not saying the movie is true. Yeah, well, but it, I, I was too young to know any. I mean,
1: to know Tanya Harding, no, right. As anything other than the Tanya Harding from the Tanya Harding Nancy Kerrigan right, like right. down scandal from the Olympics. Like, I, I never knew her as anything other than a joke. Right. Like, so
0: I, I I don't have much more to say about it than that. And just again, it, so this this it's just a personal reaction that I had that this movie just strikes a chord with me on so many levels. The athlete basically you know this you know the character that is one person that she wants in life and it's taken away from her from circumstances outside of her control and the filmmaking itself it, it's it's hilarious and again, you laugh and you cry. and the impact I had in the is my experience in the theater that held up onto the rewatch. This just, I think, got the biggest reaction out of me yeah. of any movie this this decade, and and honestly, I think it comes down to like kind of what I was going off on Sing Street. I think it it, it needs a champion. I I Tanya as an underdog of a film needs a champion, and I'm going to champion this movie. I I think this movie is is so good, and just still not on people's radars. And again, I just I, I'm I'm putting it at number one movie of the decade. And I'm going to stand by that. Do you watch uh, the YouTube
1: videos with uh, Eric Singer? He's a dialect coach. He talks no. about um, people doing accents in movies and TV shows. So uh-uh. he, has, he has one video where he talks about um, it's, it's all about people who play real people in movies. And one of the performances that he talks about is Margot Robbie playing Tanya Harding because Margot Robbie is Australian um, oh, and so right. she's doing this, uh, this accent that's, and it's not just an American accent. It's a Pacific Northwest American accent, which I didn't even know was a thing, but apparently she, I wouldn't have thought about it. Yeah. Apparently she nails it, um, according huh. to this professional dialect coach. Um, and then he also talks about, uh, one of the things that she does, uh, performance wise is because she, she plays Tanya Hardy basically from the time she's like 16 to the time she's like 40 yes. and she actually changes her works. vocal quality. She has like a, higher, like a higher register, more like clear vocal quality as a, as a teenager. And then it's her register huh. slowly lowers and she gets a little bit more of like a rough quality to her voice. And so he was just, you know, basically singing Margot Robbie's praises for not only her performance, but specifically her uh, accent work. At and her, and her vocal work.
0: I completely forget she's Australian because yeah. you rarely hear her use her natural voice. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, I mean, Oscar Wise. So, yes, yeah, she was nominated for Best Actress. Allison Janney won for Best Supporting Actress for playing her mother. Uh-huh. And then it was also nominated for editing, which kind of makes sense when you think about the skating itself. Yep. And then also the cuts to the the interviews and just kind of how it plays with the timeline. Yeah. And just you, you can definitely see that getting a nomination. Um, it is an 89% on Rotten Tomatoes. So I'm, so I'm not like, it's not like I picked some movie with like a 72%. uh, And then the uh, the audience scores right with it at 88. So, you know, definitely a solid movie. No one disagrees with that. But uh, kind of to your point, that maybe just not one people think of with uh, being one of the best of the decade. And again, it's more just the impact it has on me. I probably came to defend it as vehemently as I would defend Once Upon a Time of Hollywood or even Sing Street. But. It just struck the right chord with me, and I'm going to champion this movie for the rest of the time. Awesome. Let's hear your number one. All right. So my number one, which I, I will say,
1: this went it went back and forth between this movie and Hell or High Water. I, I did change okay. it actually several times where I had Hell or High okay. Water number one. Um, but I think that this movie is actually the, – the, I enjoy them about the same amount. I think that this movie is actually a better made movie, though. Um, So this is a movie, it's a 2010 movie, written by Aaron Sorkin, directed by David Fincher. The Social Network is my number one movie of the decade.
0: Okay, interesting. And so you don't listen to probably as many movie podcasts as I do. This was the overwhelming consensus best movie of the decade from the critics i listened to i did think that it was probably a basic bitch choice
1: but i mean what can i, I say didn't apply I, that. <laughs> I, I i love i love aaron sorkin dialogue i absolutely love aaron sorkin dialogue uh it can't be beat uh david fincher visually is an unparalleled director um the music is it's uh trent reznor and atticus ross from nine inch nails they do this really cool like understated but like it's still you can still obviously hear it but it's not in your face score but it's absolutely perfect for what the movie is the music is there when it needs to be it's not when it's not the the editing in this movie is awesome the way that they cut between the two depositions and then they almost do like shot reverse shot but it's across time so they'll do like a shot where they'll say someone will say oh this is what happened and then they show a thing that happens back in the past in a flashback and they cut back and you see someone else's reaction to having that same memory mm. you know you have the the whole unreliable narrator kind of because everyone's telling their side of the story and you know what they perceive to be the truth from from back in the day and then also the the subject matter it's about the founding of Facebook and i think that i think that almost so When this movie came out, I didn't know if it was going to age that well because I figured, oh, well, when Facebook becomes less popular, maybe this movie won't hold up as much. But I think that that's wrong for two reasons. One, I think that this movie is going to outlast Facebook. Um, I think that this movie could have been made about anything. And with the the people who are working on it and the quality of the filmmaking and the quality of the story that's being told, I, I don't think that Facebook is Facebook is really incidental. Like it, it doesn't really matter. It, it, uh,
0: the movie's not actually about Facebook. No,
1: it's not about Facebook. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, it's about greed and it's about friendships. But at the same time in 2010, I thought that maybe in a few years, Facebook wasn't going to be that big of a deal anymore. People would probably gravitate away from it just like they did Friendster or MySpace or any other social network mm. that kind of went under. But I mean, now more than ever with the advent of, you know, fake news and uh, search algorithms and, you know, people living in their bubbles on social media, I think it's almost more relevant now than it was in 2010. I think that there social media in general has a bigger grip on our culture and our society, specifically in the United States, than it than it ever did in 2010. Um, Absolutely. So I, I think that, the the subject matter it doesn't need facebook for the movie to be successful but also facebook is is more relevant now than it than it was even when the movie came out
0: so i will admit that i was wrong on that big part right there so in 2010 and i am going to kind (laughs) of undercut some of your points here (laughs) i think but uh so in 2010 i put the social network as my number seven movie from 2010 wow and at the my, my argument at the time where I was wrong is I didn't think it would hold up well because of the fleeting nature of social media platforms like MySpace up to that point. Uh-huh. Now I was dead wrong on that point specifically with Facebook and also kind of to your point, it's not even about a specific social network. So so begin based on all these other podcasts saying like. Because there was there was one, I think it's the big picture, or I think specifically, basically they're talking about it. They had like three critics on, they all had their whole list. They did exactly what we we're doing. All three basically said, yeah, Social Network, no question, like it's not even close as for the best movie of the decade. And so I was like, okay, I'll rewatch it. I'll rewatch it fully, expecting it at least make my top twenty. I just you know I'll, I'll let it leapfrog from stuff. And I rewatched it, and I was like, kind of to your point. It is very good filmmaking. I love Aaron Sorkin dialogue. Fincher's direction is great. I just don't find the story in the film that compelling. I mean, it's great. It's it's good. I like the movie. I don't dislike the movie at all. I just, I it just doesn't do it for me. I almost don't think the story is the point, though. Like, f- I don't know. Well, for that me, it's the point for you of watching movies, I, though. I know, it's, it's I, know like,
1: I know, I know. But for me, like, like the 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 cool the cool editing, the cool visuals. Again, uh, this movie has probably three scenes in it that I would that I would say I could put up for best scene of the decade uh the ver- the opening scene in the bar where he's having a conversation uh with his girlfriend with the with the, with the boom, boom 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 the yep. dialogue in that scene is it's quintessential Sorkin dialogue.
0: Yeah. Second
1: one in the dorm room coming up with the thing that night. Oh, okay. Yeah, see, that's awesome. That wasn't even going to be one of them. Oh, man. Okay. Uh, okay. The second one that I was thinking of is the uh the crew race. Where they have mm. uh, in the Hall of the Mountain King, but it's like that really like distorted, like kind of like grimy version of In the Hall of the Mountain yeah, King. That's yeah, playing. the Trent
0: Reznor version. The yeah. Trent
1: Reznor version. Uh, and and you know, and they lose the race, and then they go into the clubhouse and find out that uh, Facebook if Facebook's that they gone, to shut down. is now in Europe. Uh, right. But that the scene where they're racing specifically is awesome, awesome filmmaking, awesome direction from David Fincher, awesome music from Trent Reznor. And then the the other scene that I think is very underrated in this movie is the very last scene where there's no dialogue, there's no uh, snappy edits, there's, no, there's only one character on screen, it's uh, Jesse Eisenberg, and he's just sitting there refreshing the page for the friend request that he sent the girl at the beginning of the movie because it's finally him trying to basically participate in this in, in this social network that he has created.
0: Well, and that this whole thing has actually been about that.
1: And it's, yes, and he, the whole time, all he has really wanted was to distinguish himself and to get, and to show her that he's not an asshole, that he is, he, to get her approval, basically.
0: And, that's That's fascinating, because I find that exact moment a bit of an eye roll. Oh, like I, think it's too, I think it's too on the nose. I think it's too on the nose. Eh, I mean, I guess, but I don't know. No, hey, I'm in the minority here. Most people I, agree with you. <laughs> I love it. I love it.
1: So you said you went back and rewatched this. How how many times do you think you've seen this
0: movie? Twice. Once in the theater in 2010 oh. and once like three months ago. Okay.
1: I watch this movie probably once a month. <laughs> I,
0: I am not, even, okay. I'm not okay. even exaggerating. Um,
1: it's It's on Netflix right now. I've had it like uh I think I had a hard copy at one point, but like there have been countless times where I'm like, I got some time. I'm gonna sit down and watch a movie. I'm just gonna go through, you know, probably watch something that I've already seen, you know, just kind of shut the old brain off for a little bit. Oh, what's what looks like is good. Oh, social network? Yep, that's going on. Yep, I'm putting that on. <laughs> and that happens probably probably once a month. So I, I've seen this movie probably
0: over thirty times. And that's not exaggerating wow and i don't think i could i think some of the awkwardness and the uncomfortable situations i don't think i could i don't think i could make it rewatchable even though again i like the movie i'm not saying i don't like the movie but i don't find it that rewatchable either because like it's just i feel so bad for andrew andrew garfield's character the whole time and just all those awkward situations and even like the winklevoss twins going to the dean which is kind of like overstemping their place and they really shouldn't have done that like all those awkward moments i just, i cringe i just i can't watch them i don't know i even even an awkward moment written in Aaron Sorkin
1: dialogue, <laughs> I, I could, oh, man, I eat it up. I just, I eat it up. It's so
0: good. Man. I mean, I, we kind of went, like, we were, I think, <laughs> it's kind of funny. I think we were pretty much in lockstep through nine picks each, <laughs> and then we both questioned the other one's number one. <laughs> <laughs> like, we were all good. I'm like, yeah, 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 yeah. No, dude. <laughs> Oh, man. So, X Machina, movie of the decade, consensus. Yeah, yeah. Oh, so
1: let me address the Oscars for this movie. Yes, because yes. Because I got some stuff to say about the 2010 Oscars and th- about this movie specifically. So this movie won three Oscars. It won for Best Adapted Screenplay because um, it's based on a book, The Accidental Billionaires, which I haven't read but I heard is actually pretty good. Um, it won for Best Original Score. Um, so obviously you, you get Sorkin and Trent Reznor are getting Oscars. And then we get into the best picture and best director, uh, best picture went to King Speech, which was not on my list. Was it on your list? No, it wasn't because no one likes or cares about that movie. Uh, I had it
0: ranked three higher for 2010 though. (laughs) This
1: garbage, The, the social network should have won best picture in 2010 and David Fincher should have won for best director and not Tom Hooper.
0: See that was the fighter. That was my number we four. So I would have had the fighter should uh, should have won. I don't,
1: I don't know. I think I, uh, either way.
0: Either way, King's Speech. I I don't I don't know. I I I don't know. That's another critic consensus one where most people considered it an overrated best picture winner. Yeah. And I've rewatched it with that in mind. I'm like, I really like it. It's a really good movie. But see the I, the,
1: the British royal family stuff is right up your alley, though. You're right. And, I, and so, so uh, I don't know, but yeah. And then Best Actor, obviously Colin Firth uh, won for Best Actor that year as well. And then, cinematography, uh, it did not win, uh, but that's because Inception came out that year. So, yeah, that I, I can yeah. And then sound mixing, it, it lost to Inception as well. But yeah, snubbed by King's Speech, man.
0: And then uh, another very high one though, a ninety-six percent on Rotten Tomatoes with an eighty-six audience score. So right up there. And, okay, so I was kind of trying to keep track as we went through here, and I don't think I missed anything. So I want to look at two different metrics here. First, the top Rotten Tomatoes scores we've kind of been mentioning, but I was also looking to see which ones were in the IMDb top 250. Okay. So we've already mentioned we had a... We have a four-way tie on Rotten Tomatoes at 97%. So it's a four way tie for number two between Knives Out, Mad Max Fury Road, Heller High Water, and Three or Sorry, and Boyhood. And with then Get Out being at 98%. So if you're looking at Rotten Tomatoes, those would be the, the top movies if, from our lists. And then on IMDB, you have Mad Max Fury Road at 203 all time, 12 Years a Slave at 202 all time. And three billboards at 151 all time. And no other movies in our list made the IMDB top two fifty not even get out. That kind of surprised me.
1: I was I was kind of surprised. Um and, and I didn't I didn't do this on purpose, but when I went through here, like I didn't have I don't think I had a single best picture winner in my entire top ten. And I don't even know I think even with my honorable mentions, I don't think I had any best picture
0: winners i think i only have one 12 bill or sorry 12 uh, 12 billboards uh 12, 12 years of slave looks like my only one only best picture winner uh-huh i do have several nominees though i guess yeah probably more than you did anyway yes that is it that was a lot of fun thank you logan i might try to get to our honorable mentions in a later episode down the line but this looks like more than enough for now thanks everybody for listening and we'll catch you later